Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our conservation tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline, and today we are talking about African vultures. So this is an animal that doesn't receive a lot of love in the public eye, which is unfortunate because A, they're pretty awesome, and B, many of the vulture species are in fact endangered or critically endangered and need all the help and awareness that they can get. So to talk about this further, we are joined by today's guest, Will Donald. Uh, fellow conservationist and also co-founder of Toucan Conservation. So, well, cheers for coming on the show, mate, and welcome to the Conservation Tribe. Thank you very much, Blaine. Happy to be here. It's going to be fantastic to chat with you today. I am genuinely looking forward to it. So let's begin with an intro. How about you tell everyone a wee bit about who you are and what you do? Okay, so my name is Will Donald. I am co-founder of Toucan Conservation. I'm a current master's student at UCL studying biodiversity, evolution and conservation. And my research focuses for my masters are on painted dogs and African bird species. I've had about a year and a half experience in South Africa, Zambia and Zimbabwe, working with wildlife organizations on, on the ground to see how they conserve wildlife. Okay. Effectively. Yeah. So you're, you're finishing your, your degree. You're still finished uh, in the end part yeah, of your so degree. Yeah, so I'm currently doing my master's. And mm-hmm. then after that, I'm going to be going on to do a PhD as well. So mm-hmm. two, I'm going to do, my plan is to do two years of um, African field work after my master's and then go into a PhD. Very fancy. Do you know what your PhD topic's going to be on? Well, I'm currently thinking about doing it on painted dogs because that's the species species that I've focused most on for my masters and the species I know the most about. And they are the most endangered carnivore besides vultures in Africa. So I want to I want my PhD to be focused on a species where it's actually going to have some benefit to the conservation of that species. So those two animals are actually the most endangered. The most endangered large carnivores. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Jesus. Spitting out the facts already. So what, yeah, think about. <laughs> what inspired you to get in this space? Into conservation, pretty yeah. much. I, well, it's quite a bit of a cliche, really. I was eight years old. I remember it really well. Eight years old, 2004, and there was a documentary by the BBC called Big Cat Week. Mm-hmm. And Big Cat Week was a, was a show that was based in the Maasai Mara. And it was, two, it was three, organ, three um, conservationists going out and following a pride of lions, a family of leopards, and a family of cheetahs. And mm-hmm. they do it for, they, you know, they go out and record for three months and get this week-long footage of this show. And I watched it, and I was transfixed, and it completely sold me. And I was eight years old, and I was like, that is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And Can so my parents that. at the time were like, yeah, okay, he's going he's gonna to forget about that. He'll be fine. He'll, he'll change that up. But I haven't. I, you know, over the last, well, 15 years now, I've just been – conservation 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 just thinking about how i can get out to africa and work with wildlife i love that story like Mm. it's awesome that you can pinpoint it to like Mm. a documentary a couple of hours in your life you can point like this is a moment that has inspired what i want to do for the rest of my life 
Exactly. And so, like, the one of the um, presenters on that show was a bloke. It was a man called Jonathan Scott. Who um, he works with cheating the Masai Mara. I saw him when I was eight, and luckily one of my family friends was really good friends with Jonathan Scott. So I get to, I got to actually meet him when I was ten at a lecture, and like oh. he said to me at this lecture, I'm so amazed that you're you know you're ten years old and you want to work with wildlife. Good luck with it all. And so that has also stuck with me as well. And so like mm. I've I've been I actually I, then a second time I actually went and met him again when I was seventeen, and he. He was much more interested in the younger cohorts, obviously, mm-hmm. as as I as what I was. But he his words really stuck with me. You know, go out, don't let anyone else tell you you can't do it, and just mm-hmm. go out and follow your dreams. And that stuck with me for the last thirteen years. So, mm-hmm. I think that's good advice. Stick with your mm-hmm. guns, follow your gut, follow your dreams. We live in a world where, with the power of the internet, we can, for the most part, we can do whatever we want to do as long as we couple that ambition with hard work. We can we have the exactly. tools at our disposal to to do these things. So go out there, give it a crack. If you fail, it doesn't matter. Re, retry and like we're well, yeah, talking. Exactly, you're, you're the only person who can know whether or not you can make it or not. Effectively, if that makes sense. Like you, mm. you have your dream, and you are the only one to know whether or not you can pursue that and get that dream or not, and go to do something else. So you can't let anyone else. They can give you advice, but ultimately, it comes down to what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And if you want to go out and work in conservation, you you go out and work in conservation and mm-hmm. you go out and work out what the best route in to go and work in conservation is, mm-hmm. which is what I'm currently doing, and then pursue it. as Because if you love it, you you will get there. Mm-hmm. If you love it, you put in the hard work as well. It's definitely important. Exactly. Exactly. So, toucan conservation. So, you're obviously very passionate about this space and I guess naturally you've wanted to start up your own project which is Toucan Conservation. So do you want to talk a little bit about what that is and kind of what that stands for? Yes, okay, of course. <laughs> that was quite a funny way to say it. But, so Toucan Conservation, is its aim is to bridge the gap between science-based conservation and the general public. So Angelo and I, who are the two co-founders, we met a year ago in a game reserve in South Africa because we were both working for this organisation that was monitoring predator populations, lions, leopards, cheetahs in this game reserve. Mm -hmm. And we were thinking we've never seen like a documentary or a a factual or like a a wildlife video about, you know, the wildlife organizations on the ground that are doing conservation work. You know, the smaller, there, there are hundreds and hundreds of conservation organizations out there that are putting in hard hours to conserve Africa's wildlife, to conserve America's wildlife, to conserve the world's wildlife. And we hadn't seen anything like this. And so we wanted to create this, this platform, this, this idea, this, this, um, this well, this, effectively this video service to highlight the work these conservation organizations do to get as many people into conservation as possible to see how, you know, so they can see what goes on on the ground. Mm-hmm. So the ultimate objective is to inspire more conservationists. Correct. Correct. Get as many people watching conservation so they can want to go into conservation and help conservation. And you believe video is a great medium in order to convey those uh, messages? Yeah, exactly. I I, I generally do because people will see an article and they'll see, you know, it's got a thousand word article and they think, I don't want to, I don't want to read that. I've got got the time to read that. But they see a five minute video on this is how to save the painted dog. This is Mm -hmm. how to save the African elephant. And it's got like loads of, you know, they're bombarded with information over a five minute period about how 
these species are conserved on the ground. I genuinely think people will more like to watch that and get excited. They get to see all the cool footage of the animal in its environment mm-hmm. and they get educated along the way. Because mm-hmm. all the nature documentaries that we see out there, you know, they're all either really long and really well made, but they're all like hours long. They're like 55, 40 minutes long. Mm-hmm. And they like so the BBC, the Natural Geographics, they create these amazing, these amazing videos, but they can't, they don't quite have the reach that a five minute video on YouTube would get, I reckon. No. In terms no, of no, conservation. No. Well, the A, where they post that documentary, it's, it's not on the social platform. So that in itself removes that shareability aspect. It removes that possibility for it to go viral online because um, you, you can't share it. Um, and yeah, also the length as well, you need to consider like, um, we as humans have a, in my opinion, a diminishing attention span and you almost have to grab their attention within a few seconds. Realistically, you almost Mm. have to grab their attention in the thumbnail. So you have half a second to grab their attention or else they won't even click on the video in the first place. So you could have all the best information in the world about Lion conservation, painted dog conservation. But the crazy thing is, if you can't grab their attention in the thumbnail, they may not click on it in the first place. And there's a missed opportunity. Exactly. Like, for instance, our videos we've started uploading to YouTube. I exa- I'm exactly on that on that point with you. All, all our videos have got, uh, well, because we're doing painted dogs at the moment, that's our focus species. They're all of a painted dog in its environment interacting with something. Because mm-hmm. that's, People will think, oh, that's exciting. It's a painted dog. It's an animal that's quite cute. I, I might click on that video. Then I'll watch, you know, it's only five minutes long. So I'll watch it and I will learn something about the species that I didn't know five minutes ago. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's what the, we're trying to get into. Okay. So video, um, the medium is video, which I am a big believer in. Um, mm. And the, the focus on getting behind the scenes footage and supporting the people that do on the ground work that are the unsung heroes essentially exactly yeah i think that's that's super important is because sharing those stories yeah definitely inspires it inspires people like me it inspires anyone and i I feel like conservation is is maybe something where they don't tell those stories enough so if you can fill that gap then i think that's definitely there's a lot of value in that for sure exactly yeah and good networking as well there's a reason why you know, the National Geographics and the BBC and other organizations are starting to upload five minutes of footage <laughs> to their, to their yeah. YouTube channels. You know, you can go online and you can just type in like cheetah hunt and you'll come up. The BBC will be the first thing that comes up and it'll be three cheetahs hunting an ostrich and it's two minutes long. Mm. And that's a clip from their whole interview. Mm-hmm. But you, and you get and you get aspirin narrating over the top of it. But you don't actually learn. You, all you learn is what's going on in that particular moment. You don't know. You know how what how are those cheetahs existing in that environment? What who what is the you know what are the man hours that are going in in order to protect that environment so that so that those cheetahs are good can go and hunt that ostrich? Mm-hmm. And so that's what we want to show in our videos that is different to these organisations. Yeah, and I think it's only a matter of time before they eventually do that. Um, like the amount of time invested in money invested into creating these large scale documentaries. To come out with a product that's only a couple of hours, like obviously that couple of hours is bloody good, but there's so much content there that they can repurpose 
into smaller clips for social media, into articles, mm. into podcasts. There's just so much more. There's so much content there that they're not sharing with the world, which is unfortunate. Like that you, from one documentary alone, you could probably extract micro pieces of content for our year's worth of social media, pretty much. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would definitely agree with that. Like you can, you, you can collect, you know, my, 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 my filmmate, you said to me, he said, you do roughly about an hour's footage for a minute of, of, of video. So they could have, they've effectively got, they could create, you know, they've got, they, they've got thousands and thousands of hours of footage, but it's all of the animals themselves mm-hmm. and very little of it of the work that goes on to protect those animals. There almost so, needs to be a documentary about the documentary. Correct. And that's why, you know, that's why the BBC now, you know, they they have their hour long slot of their documentary and then 45 minutes is of what's going on in the documentary. And then 15 minutes to the end mm-hmm. is how did they film this documentary? They throw that in there at the end to mm-hmm. try and get people interested in, in, in filmography. But they're not showing as well. They're not showing how those areas are conserved. They're just showing how they went and filmed it. I'd love if there was a documentary on the different roles of the people that are involved in these documentaries. Even the, I'd love a documentary or a video on how they edit the videos or um, how they shoot the videos, kind of what settings, who they interview, like the conservationists that they interview, the, the tour guides. They could do a documentary on every single role I just don't see, I don't understand why um, they don't do that because it's just so insightful. There's, there's at least, you know, I would be interested in that in, in watching a documentary on how the person edits the video of, you know, planet earth. I'd find that interesting. And if I find it interesting, thousands and thousands of other people would find it interesting and you can target those people on social media. Anyway, I'm pretty big on social media because I, th- I think it's very powerful. So I'm always looking for ways that we can do conservation better. <laughs> exactly. Even though exactly. I'm not, even though I'm not a traditional conservationist, but I'm someone that cares. Well, what, what would you define a traditional conservationist as? I guess in the broad sense, someone that has got a formal qualification in a related field. So that is a current conservationist. The traditional conservationists of the the 70s, the 60s, 70s and 80s, you know, the George Adamsons, the Tony Fitzjohns, they went out. They weren't, they were just normal people who went out and trying to go into conserve wildlife. Mm-hmm. Like the first guys to ever release lions into, say, into Tanzania and Kenya. Like they, the guy was a, you know, he, he worked in a, in a, in a builder's shop and then he, then he decided to go out and travel Africa and got, it was at the right place at the right time. And then he's now been, he's been there for 60 years or whatever it is. Like the traditional role of conservationists. Well, if we go back, if you go back like 150 years or 200 years to when the first people, the first Europeans went over, they're all the conservationists weren't conservationists at all in these days. They were actually hunters. And so mm-hmm. they were going out and conserving loads of areas of land so they could go and shoot things. Mm-hmm. And then that's then that since then it's become, you know, you know, from from those days, it's now become going out and conserving the wildlife. But the formal qualification stuff, that only really started to kick off in the 80s and the 90s. Okay. So over the last 40 years. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, because yeah, like like I mentioned before we started recording me going to architecture school being an architect and 
always having this interest in the natural world, but not really knowing how I wanted to pursue it. But I, I think one mission with this podcast is I want to um, connect with a range of different conservationists from experts to students to creatives, innovators, anyone essentially that is working towards the same goal. And I think that's really important because the moment you close off certain conservationists, you're just reducing the potential for us to work together and, and, and do good. So I think, um, yeah, we're all, we're all important. Um, even the ones that don't necessarily have a formal qualification like myself. <laughs> well, you said, you know, a formal qualification is a degree, right? So you're an architect, so, so you've got an architect's degree. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So you could go out hypothetically, you could go out to somewhere in Africa as an architect and teach people how to build properly. And then you could, and that could then benefit conservation in that way. You could teach, you know, going out and teaching people to have a valuable skill and then they would not go out and poach things. That's like, that's the, that's the mindset that mm -hmm. people, if they want to go and work in conservation in these areas, they don't, you don't have to have, a, everyone's got a science degree, mm -hmm. but a science degree doesn't help conservation unless you can, you know, you can do something with it. Mm -hmm. And every, because everyone is so many, there's so few jobs and so many people trying to get into it. A science degree nowadays hasn't got the same weight as it used to. But if you've got a transferable skill, you know, if you can go out and build houses, if you can go out and build fences, if you can go and fix Land Rovers, you can go, you can go to Africa and you can go and work in a, in a position as a mechanic. And like, or you could go and train people up as mechanics and get jobs like that. Mm -hmm. And then that, that could be, that is a, a role that people can play in order to conserve a, in a particular area. Mm -hmm. Like a, a camp, a research camp cannot function without an onboard mechanic, a person who's there the whole time who can fix cars, a person who can fix radios, a person can fix, um, you know, like Wi-Fi signal is, is huge nowadays in Africa. Like, because you can go, you can go out in the bush and you can be 20, 12 hours in the nearest town, but you still have Wi-Fi because you can still contact Amazing. people. And like, you can, and like, that. you can do that because that's the way in Africa works. You carry, you carry, you carry around your Wi-Fi thing with you mm -hmm. and you've got Wi-Fi on the whole time. <laughs> if that breaks you can't contact anyone because people are then becoming over reliant on these on these devices and they're actually requiring people to be on site um who can actually fix them so it's a problem in terms of like the in terms of conservation like having having um a degree a degree in a field that will help someone mm -hmm. in conservation in africa is really beneficial it doesn't have to be science-based yeah I, I think I agree. Obviously, the science base is, is super, super important, um, but there is more to the picture than that. Yeah. So quickly on that, before we dive into the more vulture-specific stuff, how would you define a conservationist? How would I define a conservationist? In your opinion. Okay, well, a conservationist is anyone in any sort of world any sort of like profession anything like that who has a who has a passion for the environment and wants to help save it like any they can be simple. they can be simple you know, they might have never had any qualification in anything but they like you know my granddad for instance loves birds and wants to protect his garden he's a conservationist <laughs> yeah he wants because he wants he wants to feed his birds he's a conservationist and so you know a conservationist like i said is someone who is passionate about the environment and wants to help save it Okay, then what's the difference between a conservationist and environmentalist? Not very much. Much of I a muchness. Like it's just it's it's terminology. So, yeah. I, I how like an environmentalist, 
I don't, I don't know. So can you define an environmentalist to me? Would it, would it be the similar situation? Well, I, a, I don't really know, but from my understanding, like it's, it's much of a muchness, like you said, they're more or less the same thing, but environmentalists, uh, they try and tackle the, the bigger picture issues. So I'd say climate change and, and that kind of stuff where conservationists, their focus is more specific conserving would, a species or an, an ecosystem but that obviously in order to conserve this, this ecosystem you need to, 10 years ago i would agree with you there yeah because uh, recently very recently conservation has become moved away from conserving one species and to conserving entire ecosystems yeah so i'm actually thinking like a conservationist and environmentalist are pretty much intertwined it's just what they want to call themselves yeah you know i reckon that an environmentalist wants to call themselves an environmentalist because they love they love trees and they love they love saving the climate and a conservationist wants to call himself a conservationist because he wants to work in a in an ecosystem. He wants to work in the ecosystem and um, and conserve it in his own way. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's move on to vultures. The amazing vultures. Vultures, yeah. um, vultures excite me. They really do because they they don't get they don't get any positive life light at all. Really, no one knows anything about them. And if they do know stuff about them, they think they're grotty. They think they, they all eat is dead things and they don't really do that much. You know, as the average person, they think, oh, vultures are a bit dirty. You know, they, they, all they do is hang around dead animals and stuff like that. Yeah. So why are these? So these are misconceptions. These are, well, you know, they're not. They do hang around dead bodies, but. They, do, they hang around dead bodies, but they, they play such a fundamental role to the ecosystem and they are incredibly clean. Mm-hmm. But they, vultures, the role of a vulture is to eat dead things to clean up the environment. That is what that's what vultures do. Vultures that you know, the vultures will see, well, they'll, they'll, you know, they get a huge, huge flock of vultures that will fly overhead, and they'll be looking out for dead carcasses. When they see a dead carcass, they'll all fly down and they'll eat it. And then that means that that dead carcass doesn't have, you know, it's eaten within a couple of days, so that doesn't rot. It doesn't produce. It doesn't have loads of food left out in the environment that's rotting away so that diseases can come into the environment. Um, it, it's they're a control of the ecosystem. If vultures go extinct, then there will be carcasses littered everywhere and something else will fill that gap. So something else will want to will fill that gap and eat all of that meat. And so what's going to fill that gap? Well, it's most likely going to be stuff like stray dogs, stuff like stray cats. Um, if it's outside of an environment, if it's inside an ecosystem, it's going to be other scavengers such as lions and hyenas, which will have a very detrimental effect overall to the ecosystem. And it's, it's without vultures, it, we, like ecosystems could collapse. Okay. So you, you okay. So that's the ecological, ecological role. And you said that if they went extinct, another animal would try and fulfill that role, let's say a lion. And you said that would be negative to the ecosystem. Yes. How would that be negative to the ecosystem? So if lions are, if there are dead carcasses everywhere, um, they're going to spend a lot more time scavenging um, because there's there's food everywhere. Um, They're more likely to get diseases because the food's going to be rotting because lions lions and hyenas will eat rotten food if it's Mm. available because it's easier to eat than, say, going out and catching an animal because it's very, very energetically costly to go out and catch an animal. Whereas it's very, very easy to go and just, just scavenge across like, 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 an, like an elephant carcass, for instance. Mm-hmm. And so if they're, if they're, A, they're not, they won't be hunting it as often. So they, the so prey populations will probably increase. And then that will be detrimental to the plant species in the area. 
Mm-hmm. And then B, they're more likely to get diseases, which means they're more likely to die. And then because there's fewer of them, prey populations will increase. And then the again, the vegetation will, de- will decrease. And so the ecosystem <laughs> will go completely out of flux. Mm-hmm. And so and so it will be very, very detrimental overall. Because if, if the habitat goes beyond repair, if, if, if prey populations increase too much and the habitat gets re- reduced in quality too far, the point of no return, then the prey populations will decrease, but the, the, the foliage won't increase again. And so the, the, you know, the ecosystem, the food web will have fewer individuals overall as, um, as a result. So there is like a critical point where like, there is a point of no return and, and when talking about this kind of stuff. Yes. We don't know what that point is. Okay, that was going to be my next question. Can you yes, measure that? We don't know what the point is until we've experienced it and we haven't experienced it yet. Um, in terms of like, wide scale, that is. You do experience it sometimes on game reserves in South Africa because game reserves in South Africa are all really fenced in. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're completely fenced. So game doesn't have the opportunity to move out. And so they, they, just, they populate and they populate and they populate. They breed and breed and breed. And so there's too many of them. And then they just destroy the, all the foliage inside. And mm-hmm. so, and then they all crash. So you see it on very small scales in stuff, stuff like game reserves in, in, in South Africa. But this would happen wide scale across the entire, all of the ecosystems in Africa if vultures went extinct. Fascinating. Yeah, it's, I, I think it's hard for people that uh, don't go to uni studying this kind of like zoology, biology or conservation. It's hard for them to appreciate just how intricate that balance is of an ecosystem mm. and how it's, it's like a spider web. Once you, you know, the tiniest touch of the spider web will ripple through the whole thing. And I, I feel like that is um, an accurate kind of analogy. It, it is just a delicate, it is a delicate balance and any the removal of some species or any kind of change can have drastic consequences. Exactly. And I think as well, like people understand that you need to conserve lions, you need to conserve elephants because they're keystone individuals to their to the ecosystem. They put out a lot more than they put in because they regulate that. So, so they, they put out a lot more than they take. So they they all they all uh, monitor pop that, you know, they will monitor the ecosystem and they all um, what's the word I'm looking for? They will like they will control it. Well, vultures play a, as, an as critical role to the ecosystem as lions do, as elephants do, as leopards do, as hyenas do. They all they all play a vital role. And if you remove one thing, if you remove one species out of that, if you remove elephants or you remove lions or you remove vultures, then uh, the ecosystem will just completely go out of flux, as we said, and it was just and it could and it could collapse. How how do we articulate the severity of that? How, how can we present that in a way that is digestible to the everyday person? Because to us, well, it's just like, how can yeah. we do that? But to the everyday person, they're like, I don't, th- I don't see how that's a big deal. Like, how do we make them care about it? That's a good question, actually. I was going to say, there's a, there's a very good video on YouTube, again, videos in social media mm-hmm. of, you might have seen it about the wolves in Yellowstone, reintroducing wolves into Yellowstone National Park. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that video? I haven't seen it, but I've, I've read about it. Okay. So, yeah. So, wolf populations were re- reduced completely in Yellowstone National Park. They were completely wiped out. And then the whole part, it's all about how introducing wolves changes rivers. So, 
The the wolves were wiped out. The antelope came in, the deers, and they completely destroyed the habitat. Then they reintroduced wolves, and then the antelope moved away from the rivers. Vegetation grew again, and then rivers moved, and they completely changed their course. Rather than going straight down, they actually meandered. And so this video that came out, it's got millions of views, five minutes long, very digestible. People can watch it. And they and so they and then they think, oh, that's fantastic. We can see that. We can see the effect mm -hmm. of this conservation, of the reintroduction of these top order predators into the ecosystem and see how um, how that can just create much more natural beauty compared to what it was before. Mm -hmm. In terms of getting the average person into to care about this stuff. It's very, very difficult to get someone who doesn't care to care. Like you, like if they, if they are not on the fence, if they just don't, if they do, do not care, you're not going to persuade those people. But it's to get, is the, for my view, is to get the people who are on the fence who are not, I wouldn't say ignorant, but like they don't know as much about it. But they you know they're kind of like animals. They're not too sure about it. And then you say to them, you show them all this information, you share it to them. And you say, this is what, you know, we need to conserve these areas in the same way that we want to conserve stuff in the UK, in, in Australia, New Zealand. So I know New Zealand's got a huge problem with invasive species, for instance, that you're trying to get, like New Zealanders are trying to get their, um, like get everyone to understand what invasives are and how bad they are for the environment. It's a similar sort of situation. You've got to say to people that if these things go extinct, we have caused that and we need to do something about it. And then I think you could get people to, um, on board with that. If you say it's our fault that this has happened, let's fix it, then people are more likely to go for it. Hmm. I've been thinking about this idea really like a lot the last probably month or two about what actually informs our decisions and why do we do what we do. This is getting quite philosophical, but I'm pretty pretty philosophical kind of bloke. But why do we do the things that we do? And if I'm wanting to convince you to do something differently, how do I do that? And I reckon it it comes down to people do things because they think that they will gain more pleasure from doing that than if they didn't do that. It's like a selfish perspective. And I think things like conservation and, and climate change and all these things, the only way that they will change their mind is if guilt is one thing, but you need you need to convince them that it is better for them to go down this route than if they didn't go down this route. And I think guilt is a card that you can play because if they're feeling guilty enough, if their guilty outweighs their selfish desires, then they'll change their mind because um, you know it, it isn't a pleasurable experience yeah. being guilty. But at the end of the day, you're trying to you're trying to be net positive in pleasure, and and you need to convince their selfish gene that it's beneficial for them to do it. Otherwise, I don't actually think people will change. So uh, uh, education is one thing, but you need to educate them in a way that Benefits. makes them understand that this is actually a good thing for me to do. People, I think. Yes, again, philosophically, I, I think people are inherently selfish. They're in for it for themselves. And if you can get them, as you said, if you can get them to think that it benefits them to conserve these animals, if there's, if there's a way that you can do that, then that's how you've got to change people. But if you, I, I completely agree with you there. Mm. And I, I, yeah, I, I agree. I think inherently we are selfish beings. But on that, I think 
thinking about the collective well-being or the collective health of you know species and ecosystems if we take that mindset we selfishly will be better off so kind of in like a contradiction like an ironic kind of way the less selfish you are the more you will receive in return if that makes sense like the more that i care about the environment and the more i care about how rhinos and elephants how i can increase their quality of life or how i can increase the rainforest quality of life and all the organisms within it if i adopt a mindset of caring about those things in the long run i will actually be better off for it so it's selfish to not be selfish yeah it's selfish to be almost selfless like i people do things because it makes them feel good if you you want to you, you like not saying you you but like if you want to go out and you know not have palm oil products in your food because it makes you feel like you're making a difference because mm-hmm. it makes you feel good mm-hmm. so but that's again you got to have that mindset for people you got to be able to be able to sway people to think that it will make them feel good mm-hmm. to save the environment like a, lo- a yeah. lot of these environmental trends at the moment are that the, the trends and people hop on board because they may genuinely care about the environment. They may genuinely care about um, reducing their, the plastic that goes into the oceans. But a lot of them are just doing it because it's a cool thing to do. Which kind of goes back to my previous point about why they do it in the first place, because they're getting something from it. They're, they're, they're doing it because they will be perceived as this you know, this this person doing the right thing and they'll get that kind of cool like, status it's like social status. virtual virtual signaling almost like they want to show other people that they're doing the right thing and to get other people to do that for them so i get i, I sort of get that yeah hmm. and i'm not well, saying i don't necessarily think that's a bad thing yeah, i'm not saying it's negative yeah i'm not saying it's negative because it's what it is and i i i would agree that that's actually quite a good thing you know you yeah, want to so- show people you want to show people that this is the way to conserve the environment it makes me feel good come and feel good with me you know, mm-hmm. if that makes sense like mm. come and come and in, you know come and enjoy protecting the environment and get something selfish that's beneficial for you out of it mm-hmm. and the thing is once they kind of go down that route they they will probably their, their mindset will shift to one where it's like i actually I do genuinely care like i started this because i thought it was cool but now i actually give a shit now an eco and i think that's like the natural progression like i, I know a lot of people yeah. that have you know, like my mate that I did the very first podcast with, he he is obsessed with elephants now. Like that's his whole life is ensuring that, you know, he's like an advocate for them. But when he first worked at the Elephant Sanctuary, like many moons ago, five years ago, whatever, he didn't have that interest. It was just a random job that he saw online and he started. He was like, this will be a cool experience. And since then, he's now become like this elephant advocate. And it's that once you get your foot in the door, even if it's to be kind of hop on a bandwagon, you can become a converter. You can be converted yeah. um, in the process, which is And then become a converter, yeah. Yeah, and then exactly. you become deep-rooted in the cause. Yeah, I'm fascinated with I want to make conservation cool and because it being cool is a way to um, – get people's foot in the door you know just to taste it if they think it's cool they'll taste it and they'll see and um not all of them will be fully converted but i think a portion of them will 
So I think well, that's important. Prepared, Conservation needs to be cool. It needs to be cool. So how do exactly. you make it cool? Exactly. Yeah. That's my thesis, and that's something that I'm working on. Seems to be a, a, a quite Mr. a bit Philosophy. more complex than I originally anticipated. <laughs> It's a big thing. Yes, well, it's, it's yes. Conservation is extremely complex, and people don't get that really. They don't understand how difficult it is to conserve environments and and so and everything that goes into it. And so, again, that's why Angela and I are starting up Toucan to try and get people to understand that. Yeah. But that's like inherently as well. Angela and I are doing Toucan because we get to learn stuff. We get to learn. I've learned so much about the painted dog over the last three months. Our next species are either going to be giraffes or hyenas or cheetahs or something like that. I'm going to learn so much about those species and then I'll learn how to conserve them and then I'll be able to share that information with people and make conservation cool, as you said, make people interested and get into it. Mm -hmm. When yeah. you do a podcast every single time you do a new species, I reckon that should be a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So how many species of vultures are there in the world? So... You've got to think, when you think about vulture populations and species, you've got to first classify them into two groups. You've got the New World vultures, which live in America, so North America, South America, which actually, so you've got the black, I think that's the black vulture. Um, the California condor is actually involved in the vulture family as well on that side. And then in the Old World, Africa and, and Asia, you've got 16 species of vultures. Of those 16 species, 10 live in Africa. And of those 10, six are endemic. They only live in Africa. So mm -hmm. there are, of, and those 10 species are, you've got the two largest species, as in, as in largest populations, are the hooded vulture and the white-backed vulture. There's about 200,000 of those. Then the largest in size, the lappet-faced vulture. Then you've got the, the white-headed vulture, the Egyptian vulture, the cape vulture, the griffin vulture, the palm nut vulture, and a couple of others I can't remember the names of. But... And all of those vultures, again, are, are apart from one, are all carnivorous and all scavengers. So they all, so my, for my in, in terms of my, in terms of science, in terms of interest, how does ten species of a of a of a, of a genus all play in the same role at accessing the same ecological niche? How do they all coexist? Because they all they all should be competing with each other. Surely, if they're all playing the same role, they should be competing. Now, the way they've got around it is they've all got different size heads and different size beaks. <laughs> so the largest ones have massive beaks, which allows them to open up carcasses that are dead and access all the large bits of meat. And the smallest ones are very small bits, have very small beaks, so they can access all the little tiny nooks and crannies. Like, you know, the other ones can access. Yeah, so like the hooded, the hooded vulture is about a third of the size of the lappet face vulture, but they all they all eat at the same time around the carcass. Yeah, and they all and that's how a carcass gets completely cleaned. They're completely there's no meat left on them because they all play that role. And so again, if you know if you lose one of those species out of yeah, out of the ten, then it can completely mess things up. And we're going definitely going down that route. So of the um, of the ten species in Africa. Six of them, I think, are either critically or normally endangered. So they've all declined by at least 80% over the last, or 50% or 80% over the last three generations. Three generations so the, being how long? Yes, three generations. So the, the way the ranking for an endangered species works is it's based either over 10 years or over three generations, whatever, whatever is longer. And vulture populations, vulture species, because they are so long-lasting lived, 
their generation length is about about 20 years. So it's actually over about 60 years, they've declined by 62% overall, and some species have declined by about 90%. Now that sounds like a long time, but you've got to remember that vultures breed incredibly slowly. They breed once every two years and they only have one chick. So it takes them, it takes them four years to pay for themselves, if that makes sense, to so an ecosystem. If they can raise two chicks up, for the mother and father have done their bit and they've actually they've actually you know they can continue to have the population at a stable level but that takes four years and so and it, you have to have two vultures raising one chick if one vulture dies the chick dies and the vulture has to go and find a new mate again and so the reason that vulture population is declining so much is because the fact that they are slow breeders and because they um, are so, because they're so long-lived, and they and they are so susceptible to human enroachment. How are they susceptible to human enroachment? So there's three vulture populations declined by ninety nine percent of the decline is due to humans. Ninety nine percent of the decline that's occurred is due to humans. Bloody hell! And there's three main reasons, three main factors that causes that decline. The first one is poisoning. 60% of vulture deaths over the last, I think it's the last three generations, have been due to poisonings. And there's three methods of poisoning that occur for this to, to occur. Mm-hmm. So the first two methods are indirect. So they don't, they're not deliberately being poisoned. They're, other things are being trying to be poisoned and they're having mm-hmm. an effect by eating the food. So the first of those is farmers will go out and they'll lace poison on carcasses like cows to kill other predators, to kill lions, to kill jackals, to kill hyenas, to kill painted dogs. And they do it so that in order to keep their cattle alive because predators are a massive threat to cattle. And vultures, because they're the cleanup crew, they come down and they try and eat the poison food, the poison carcasses, and they all die because they all get poisoned Mm -hmm. because they can't, they can't, they can't um, digest poison. Like they've got incredibly strong, a digestive system, which means they can eat rotten flesh where, where other things can't, but they can't eat poisons, so they all die. So that's that's the immediate poisoning from farmers. The second one is more chronic. So like if you put out pesticides all over your land for like countless years, mm-hmm. over time that will bioaccumulate into species. And bioaccumulation is basically where a low level of pesticide is eaten from the grass into an antelope. It gets concentrated in the antelope. Then a lion, say, will come and eat all of those antelope, and the the percentage of that poison will increase in the lion. Then the lion dies, and a vulture will come down and eat that lion because it's dead, and it will have a huge, huge concentration of poison in its system, and that will poison the vultures and kill them. So that's that's and that's all down to farmers using pesticides and herbicides and um, and other stuff like that. So that, that's that's two of the poisoning things. And then the third poisoning thing, which I think is the most outrageous, and it actually ties into the article that we show, uh, showed you about Africa, Ge- Africa Geographic, is deliberate poisonings. Vultures are a, currently, vultures are a symbol for anti-poaching units to alert them that an elephant or a rhino has been poached nearby. Because they all they see a massive elephant carcass and they think, oh, fantastic! I'm going to go and eat this huge portion, this huge elephant, and be filled up for the rest of the month. Mm-hmm. And so they go out and they eat this elephant. And the, the poachers know this, and they want to get rid of the vultures because the vultures are signalling the anti-poaching units. 
So they yeah. will go out and they will deliberately they will deliberately poison elephant carcasses that they've already poached in order to get vultures to come down, eat the carcasses, and all die, so that they can't get affected. So they can't actually be used. As this is warning a, signals. Exactly. Yeah. So that poison is obviously fast acting then. Extremely fast acting. You can it will kill them in a day. And like you, you can't if, if unless you can't unless you find this carcass, they will all be dead in a day. Like the yeah. vultures will die in that day. And the problem with this is the poison is. So, I've been to Zimbabwe. I was there in January, right? The poison is sold on the street. It's illegal, but it's just sold on the streets to people. People will actively go out and sell this poison openly on the streets, and people don't care, like because people don't know about it. And so they'll go out. They'll poach the buy this poison, go out, kill their elephant. Place it with all the poison, and then they'll take the tusks and go back, and then all the vultures are dead. It's 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 outrageous what happens. And the way to fix that, of course, is to educate people about what's going on. You know, if, if a tourist sees a person with a big white, with a big like offering him some sort of white substance, obviously it's not necessarily going to be drugs or anything, but like because that happens quite a lot as well in Zimbabwe. But <laughs> you know, if if they if they're just out on the side of the street looking fishy, got a, you know big pack things of pockets of stuff. Reports the police, and then suddenly these people get taken in, and then that's what happens. Like the the only way to get them set this, they know they're not going to get caught because no one cares about it, so they will openly sell it on the street. It's nuts. So this is the people selling the poison. Yeah, mm. you've got a, they're the suppliers. Mm-hmm. You you target a supply chain rather than react to it, and you can get rid of it. Could you even go back? Is there an alternative farming method that wouldn't encourage? animals to kill the livestock which in this turn is, sorry, this, sorry, i need to be clear here this is this is the poison by the poachers oh, the poison this poachers. is not this is not by the farmers the farmers do it use all legal substances yeah and they're allowed they in some cases in africa they are in some places they are allowed to go out and poison carcasses to kill lions mm-hmm. or kill stuff like that if they're being problems if they are registered as a problem animal they're allowed to go and do that mm-hmm. but i'm talking when i'm talking about this here i'm talking about deliberate poisonings by poachers onto like elephant carcasses mm-hmm. and they sell the stuff in the street it's crazy yeah it's crazy to sell it in the street it is. it is it's absolutely nuts and yeah it's just it's a it's it's a big battle that people have got to fight and that's that's one of the roles that conservation organizations for vultures are doing they're educating people about this substance these substances are being used for poisonings because like if if a if a conservation truck drives along and sees a person selling some some stuff they, and they know what it is they can report it whereas mm-hmm. they don't if they don't know what it is then they just, they can't do anything about it unfortunately but anyway so that's the first that's poison first that's the first main poison thing. And that mainly occurs in southern and eastern Africa. Southern the second eastern. thing, southern and eastern. So from South Africa to Kenya, all the way up that um, east coast and across uh, up to about Zambia-ish. And then the second worst thing for vulture populations, which has caused them to decline by 30%, is, um, is voodoo and medicine. People in West Africa view, in, particularly in their culture in West Africa, they view vultures as um, as this sort of magical creature. If you can have vulture necks around your neck, you'll be a really potent man and stuff like that. And they actually go out and they sell and they and they buy vultures, they poach vultures to wear around their necks to be potent men. They also eat vulture meat because they think it's they think it's very very nutritious and very very. Um, you know, if you eat the meat of a vulture, you'll, you'll be able to um, you'll be able to never be poisoned and stuff like that because they've got such strong stomachs, which is a bit ironic considering the vultures get poisoned all the time. 
But and that's very that's all in West Africa. I don't know too much about that and how to how to stop that. But I do know that Nigeria and Benin account for ninety five percent of all the vulture trades in in Af- in Africa. What countries? They, Nigeria and Benin. So they're they're in West Africa. Yeah. Um, and they so I think Nigeria is like seventy percent of the of all vulture trade happens in Nigeria, and twenty three percent happens in Benin. And well, they'll have you know they'll have open street markets where they're just selling vultures. And they're selling other and other exotic animals. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So that's that's the that thirty percent, and then the last nine percent, which is so one percent is like their natural decline over over time, which is due to like human erosion and stuff. But nine percent of it is actually due to power lines. Nine percent of all vulture deaths are due to power lines because vultures, when they nest, they like nesting in high places away from predators, so no predators can come and eat their chicks. So historically, they would they would like nest in cliff faces where nothing could reach them. But suddenly, these brand new big sticks that nothing can climb pop out of nowhere. Think, oh, it's a great place to nest my chick. I'm gonna just go. I'm gonna come and land here, build up a nest, you know, raise my chick for a couple of times, fly in. Oh, I've got electrocuted, and I'm dead. And that's how that's what ha- that's what happens to the vulture population. That's like nine percent, nine percent of deaths. It's crazy how much. Of the of the percentage that of that decline is due to just them around power lines, around human power lines, and you can't fix that because people need power. So it's it's very very difficult to work out how to set, how to stop that from happening. When that does happen, like, there's a lot of organisations that are very reactive to that sort of thing. They mm. get they're, they're very big about their education. You know, if you see a vulture nest, report it. And then we will we will monitor that vulture nest, and if something happens to the vultures on that power line, we will be able to go in straight away, and then be able to um, heal it up and fix the vulture if we can. But it's all reactive. You can't you can't do that proactively unless you get rid of power lines, and you can't do that unless you unless you convert everyone to solar, which is really expensive. Yeah. So it's nuts. Yeah. So it's, that's yeah. It's going to be a problem that is probably not solvable at least in the near future no yeah okay so we have poison we have kind of voodoo medicine kind of traditional um mm-hmm. yeah, medicine and then we have the power lines power lines yeah those are the three main causes of vulture decline and they've caused vulture decline by 62 percent on average across all species but five species have declined by more than 80 percent because of all this stuff like and, and, and you're attributing stuff. like a percentage to those things. So you said nine percent to power lines, and what for the rest? Thirty yeah. percent for the voodoo medicine, and sixty yeah. percent for poisoning. Poison. And this all comes from a, a paper by Ogasha et al. I think his name is, which I can link you, and I can link to your yes. followers as well. Yes, link I will me. absolutely send this. It was in 2016, and he he went he did a systemic review of all vulture decline over the last. Like going through every single paper that's ever been published on vultures and working out the declines and all the data, and so this came out three years ago. And so this is Ooh, so it's this, got population he, declines like, and those kind of statistics. Yeah, it's got everything Perfect. in it. It's got it's got it's got tables, graphs, pie charts, everything. Like, and it's, it's the sort of thing. And you can it's a way to for people to get interested into science. Just to go back to getting people interested in science for, for a minute. It's you know you can go onto Google on a thing called Google Scholar, and you can type in vulture decline review and the first thing will come up will be Ogash's paper and you can click on it and it might you might and there'll be like 10 versions of it and one of those will be free because scientific papers are not free you have to buy them unless you're a student 
but there's a lot of across like the web you can get the free version of the paper and so you can actually read the paper if people want to learn about lions they can type in lion behavior review lion conservation review and things will come up and so they can go out and read these scientific papers because mm-hmm. that's how i got into the science proper science side of things was that what scholar. i did yeah literally just google scholar you can go on google scholar type <clears> in a, a species name of a particular topic and about two million papers will pop up and you'll tick the click the first couple and they'll be that'll be it mm-hmm. it's, okay. it's that easy now yeah yeah google scholar's a great tool um mm. one thing so one thing i'm quite interested in at the moment is I feel like the population decline is a good um, fact to kind of present as like an infographic or something because it's very visual and it's very black and white. It's like this was the population 50 years ago and this is the population now and people can see the drastic decline. But um, it's, it's not always easy trying to find that, that information. So what are some like with vultures with animals and the population decline how would you what keywords would you use in google scholar this is kind of more for my personal so interest you don't have to use google scholar for to get population declines the best thing for to do that to do that is to go onto the iucn website the iucn red list yeah which is where the majority of the stuff on declines comes from because they're all like the agasha name i mentioned before he did the red list for all these species he, so the way that the red list works is you've got a species, it goes through all the data on their population ever, and they, it works out a population decline and then works out whether or not they're endangered or critically endangered or vulnerable or least concerned, any of the factors. And all you need to do is type in iucnredlist.org or whatever it is, or you're just into Google IUCN red list, and it comes up and you've got a search bar, type in a species, and it will come up with that species. And then you download the assessment and it's there. And you've got you've got a 10-page document which details everything about that population status in the world today. Yeah, but does that include kind of um, like historic data as well? Yeah, yeah, it includes everything. It includes, includes um, where the population was three generations ago, how it's declined, how much it's declined by now. Um, it, and if you a lot of the species that are very, like, very well known, they've mm-hmm. got extra supplementary material where they have um they'll have like actual like for instance the painted dog which is a good example that i use it's got each population today um and each population 30 years ago and what the differences are between that so it goes and that's because um the painted dog has got lots of research funding behind it and loads of people are researching it all across africa mm-hmm. so you can go and do that people aren't researching vultures that much so you can't really get that historical data same with like a lot of bird species you don't really get the same level of accuracy mm-hmm. But you, they get a, they've got a very good way like, of modelling how this decline has occurred and what the what the likelihood of decline is. And so it is the best tool, I think, to, to understand how species are declining are to go onto the IUCN website and then take you can take their data and then create infographics from it. And mm. that and that that and that's the way you, you know you cite them in your in your infographic saying this data is from IUCN Red List. But you can then spread that information to as many people as possible in a very digestible way as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all about making it digestible, isn't it? It is. Reading, it, reading a scientific research paper and then trying to figure out how we can um, package it in a way that's uh, you know we can post on social media. And even you even need to be more specific than that because a piece of content what that looks like should be different on 
Instagram, it will look different on YouTube, it will look different on Facebook, it will look different on Twitter. Like you can't just create one video and then just post it on each of those platforms. You need to tweak it a, a, a little bit to suit that platform and how people consume that content on that platform. So like even on Instagram, you know, vertical videos do better than non-vertical videos just because it takes more real estate up on the screen. Mm. So just from the perspective of attention spans, again, you know, when you scroll down your feed, it will appear on the screen for longer, therefore we'll pay more attention to it. So these little nuances I find fascinating. You have to tailor it to the, to the platform, exactly. You need, to tailor, the- you need to respect the platform and you need to respect the people that consume on that platform and what they want to see on that platform. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's exactly. a crazy world. And like our, our job as, as scientists, scientists and scientific literate people and people who understand, like you know, conservationists who, who aren't scientists because they haven't got the degree but understand the science, our job is to, is to spread as much of this information as possible on all these platforms in a digestible way to get the average person who's not into their conservation to think, oh, that's quite interesting. I'll click on that and learn something new mm-hmm. and then maybe I'll get into it, as we've said before. And so the best thing to do for that, if you like, for instance, if you want to create infographics about a new species and you don't want to have to rely on experts, you go on the IUCN website and you get um, you get a particular species that you're interested in and you read their 10 page document. You pick out the really important parts of that that you think are important, create an infographic out of it. And suddenly 8000 people can get this condensed information mm-hmm. and, and learn a lot about a species. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very important. Um, yeah, that's, that's a big reason why I started this podcast. Like it, my earth offline project's not, not where I want it to be, but the podcast is, um, a big step in getting where I want to be because my whole content strategy, which I'm currently working on involves a podcast. So a pillar piece of content, which goes for say an hour. And then from that, and it's documenting. So I'm not creating a, 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 um, you know, I'm not creating this this podcast. I'm just documenting. So that in itself saves me time, but still useful. From that podcast, I can extract small videos. I can extract images. I can extract infographics. I can extract photos. I can extract potentially a hundred pieces of content, which I can repurpose to each social platform. And that all comes from. I'm not creating each content. I'm just extracting it from my podcast so like once i figure that out i'm hoping i can eventually be in a in a place where i can do a podcast a week and from that i can create fairly quickly 100 good pieces of content which i can post all these social platforms and i want to be able to fine-tune that system so i can roll that out weekly so i think Volume is important as well. Quality is obviously important, but the, the ideal combination is quality and quantity. Mm. And um, the podcast is an, an integral part of um, allowing yourself to create quality content at scale. So that's, that's something that I'm working through at the moment is trying to figure out like turning one minute of this into a, a video meme on um on instagram for example stuff like this it's yeah all experimental at the moment for me but it's again it's trying to figure out how i can um 
you know, harness the social media, which, you know, people are living on, that in itself is like the online, offline world. We live on the online world. The offline world is... I genuinely hate it. I genuinely hate how addicted everyone is to their online stuff. I wanted to delete Facebook, actually, but I couldn't because of the fact that I need to reach out to people and and talk about conservation and spread that. So I like like Facebook is such an important integral part of the conservation world to share information. And it's not just for Zucan stuff I do, but it's for everything. I want I need to learn as much as I can yeah. through that. And but then it's the other side of it. It's just so it's so over it takes overtakes everything that you do unless you unless you're careful about it. And yeah, I just, you can do I, for sure. Yeah, like I, I'm not big on social media. Like before this, like I had a Facebook account, but I never used it. I had an mm. Instagram account, but I never used it. The only reason why I'm doing this is because of conservation. And the same with podcasts. Like, I hate being on camera. Like I despise being on camera. <laughs> like why is I, that? Well, I just like, don't like I don't like being center of attention. Mm. That's like my ideal scenario would be inspiring conservation and no one knowing who i am but i well, know yeah. and you guys be an underlying organization does all the stuff behind the scenes effectively yeah yeah in a very similar like 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 analogous to the stuff that goes on in conservation these days you got the big names you talk you know always on the documentaries and stuff like attenborough is always on the documentaries chris packer who's in the uk um and then you have really small conservation organizations who are not in the limelight working their butts off and not not what not getting credit for it, but also not wanting to get credit for it. They're doing it because they want they want to do as much as they can for mm. conserving of the areas. Mm. But I realize that it's like it's important to spread this message, and a good way to spread that message is on social media and through a podcast. Yeah. So you know, I'm just doing it, biting the bullet, and, and doing it, and just learning as I go. But um, I do enjoy the conversations on these podcasts. I'm like. Like I'm that bloke that would go to a party and would kind of sit down to someone and be like, "So what? Like, what do you think the the meaning of life is?" Like, <laughs> I'll go. What are your three passions about life? Is a good, is a good one that I like. To oh, say. I pretty much jump to those like deep questions, and they either like it or they don't. And if they don't, I move on. But so this kind of format is good for me. And they'll be like, "Oh, that's interesting." Yeah. I yeah, love yeah, to be able to do like have you know you know what a DNM is? Hey, do you have that phrase in in UK? DNM. Deep and meaningful. Deep and meaningful. Yeah, yeah. I'd love we to have a DM DM about cons- conservation every week. That'd be yeah. freaking great. But yeah, very, very fascinating. So, um, so you touched on the threats. What are some potential conservation solutions that have been proposed at the moment? Well, to stop poisonings of vultures, which is the main conservation threat in southern Africa. You've got to do three things. You've got to stop elephant poaching and stop rhino poaching because that because those are the carcasses that are getting poisoned. So in order to do that, that by stopping the poaching of elephants and rhinos, you indirectly save the vulture population. Yeah. So but obviously that's not going as fast as everyone needs it to. So investing much more time and money and effort into that. Um, and then education for farmers. Like farmers, you know, using pesticides and herbicides that won't bioaccumulate. Because nowadays pesticides and herbicides are being invented especially in the west that are le- much less damaging to the environment than they used to be mm-hmm. so educating farmers to use those but again they've got to be they've got to be 
uh, financially viable, you can't just say you've got to use something that is really good for the environment if it costs them 500% more to use. Yeah. yeah. So you've got to find a solution to do that. So you got you got to get farmers to use you got to use to use affordable um, affordable herbicides and pesticides that are good for the environment effectively, and you've got to get them to be much more tolerant of predators on their property. The way to do that is to get them to to fence much higher for their for lions to get in, prevent prevent lions getting in, and then um, in terms of farmers like for, for other predators. You know, painted dogs and jackals don't really go for, um, and cheetahs as well, cheetahs is a big one, they don't actually really go for livestock, but they're perceived to. So it's educating them about the fact by showing them actual data that they're not actually going to be attacking your livestock. Mm -hmm. And then they're much more lenient on those particular predators. So stop the farmers by um, poisoning cattle, uh, poisoning their own cattle to do predators. Um, making the farmers use much more environmentally sustainable, but also financially sustainable alternatives to their herbicides and pesticides and prevent elephant and rhino poaching. And those three things will cause the decline of vultures in southern Africa to effectively halt if you can solve those three problems. In Western Africa, much more difficult because they are taken primarily for voodoo and for um, and for medicine. So you've got a, that education again, saying they're not um, they're not actually beneficial, mm-hmm. but it is their culture. They've been doing it for thousands of years, and some Westerner comes in and says, "You can't kill vultures because they don't do anything." Isn't going to work. So you've got to actually work out a means of explaining to them in a in a positive way. You know, getting them to understand. That the importance of vultures to an environment, but then not hindering on their beliefs or, or making fun of their beliefs effectively, if that makes sense. Yeah, that must be a tricky situation. Extremely tricky. Yeah. Yeah, because obviously it comes down to education, but especially with the older people in that community, it's very, I imagine it would be very difficult to convince them otherwise. You know, you reach a period in your life where it becomes your beliefs aren't as malleable as they were when you're younger. So it's, it's hard to convince the older person about, you know, you shouldn't do this versus the younger one. So if it is the case that the younger ones can be convinced, then it's probably going to be the next generation where you'll see the um, reduction perhaps. Exactly. You've also got to remember as well that vultures are extremely wide-ranging species. They can go, they can a, a lappet-faced vulture, for instance, or a white-backed vulture can have a meal. There was a date, there was a paper that was published two years ago, I think it was. It it was collared in Tanzania. So when I say collared, they, what they do is they have these really, really, really lightweight radio trackers that they track the vultures and put them on the back of their back of their backs. They are solar powered and they don't actually really hinder the vulture at all because it weighs almost nothing and so they put it on this um vulture in in the middle of tanzania and they tracked this vulture and it went all the way down to the bottom of south africa it traveled about like seven thousand miles or something ridiculous that that far and that's how far wide they range so that it's a, it's a globe it's a continent-wide problem that has to be solved and so if a, if a vulture, it's just to understand the, the, the scale of the problem, if, a vul, if vulture conservation is doing really well in South Africa, you know, they get rid of all their elephant poaching, they get rid of their rhino poaching, which they're not doing, but they will do eventually. Um, they can really conserve them really well in South Africa. But then the, that vulture can fly to 
to Malawi or to northern Zambia and then eat a poison carcass and then get killed. So because mm. because that's how far wide they range. So you've got to have conservation and all of these methods that I've, I've talked about implemented across all of Africa. And that's very difficult to do when the, these countries are very, very poor, effectively. Like the people, people in Zambia, for instance, whilst it's quite a rich, effectively rich country, they are they in terms of the rest of in terms of the rest of the region, they like the farmers there are going to the environmental regulation is extremely very um, unregulated. Yeah. So like the farmers don't really care about the fact that they're putting out, um, you know, they don't really care about the fact they're putting out DDT. And which you know DDT is still being used in Tanzania and Zambia, which is crazy, I, I think. But they don't really care they're doing that because they're still getting good crop yields. Mm-hmm. So you have to explain to them that not using these, using these, it's very difficult to explain to them. But you have to explain to them that using like these old methods of herbicides and pesticides are going to be detrimental to you further on. Because if you have, if you wipe out, the way to do it is say if you wipe out vultures then all these carcasses are going to be everywhere. Stray dog populations are going to massively increase, are going to be looking for cattle and looking for things to eat. So they're going to attack your sheep and attack your cattle if you have massive packs of, of, um, of, of dogs everywhere. That's, actually, that, that, that's what happened in India in the early 2000s. Indian population of vultures declined by 98% in five years in the early what? 2000s. In yeah. India? And that's because they, they found out it's because of a drug called diclofenic, which was implemented into cattle. And all these cattle were eating this diclofenic and they'll be fine because it was a medicine for them. But then vultures would eat the dead cattle and they all died. And they all, and they all died. And then dog populations skyrocketed, stray dog populations skyrocketed. And now India has one of the highest rates of rabies in the world because of the fact that vultures were wiped out. And how did the vultures it- affect the dog population? Because there's dead cattle, there's loads of dead cattle not being broken down. Yeah. And then, like, if they get killed by tigers or get killed by bears and stuff, and and, and wolves and things like that, and leopards, and then the, the cattle die, and then the vultures eat the cattle, all get poisoned by this declofenic because they can't digest it, all die. Then there's meat everywhere. And so stray dogs come and eat the meat, yeah. and then their population explodes because there's loads of free meat everywhere. Yeah. And then those dogs then go into communities and infect people with rabies, so they bite them. And so that's why the rabies outbreaks in India have increased exponentially since the vulture crisis. And which, when was that? That, is, that was in the early 2000s. It was known as the Indian vulture crisis. And that's going to happen in Africa if, if these things go extinct. Like that will happen again because the, A, the fact that the Africa is much larger continent, there are many, many more stray dogs compared to India. So yeah. the populations, and there's also much more wildlife in Africa, as well. So if those, and so if you know, if if um, ecosystems break down and like um, there's loads of dead animals everywhere, stray dogs will go into normal wildlife areas and eat loads of loads of um, loads of dead meat, and then it'll just explode as well. And so that will affect wild populations in, in Africa, but also affect all the communities as well. So you'll get huge disease outbreaks. So that's be, kind of where it, we're heading if we That's where we're change. heading if we don't sort it out. And we can sort it out if we act now, effectively. Mm-hmm. But we have to do it it has to be a continent wide um effectively which is very difficult, obviously. Getting getting every single country to implement these policies a broad scale is incredibly difficult. But um it's it's definitely possible. So how can we help as the general public? 
Um, well, how can how can the general public help? If it all depends on whether or not you're willing to go to Africa or not. So if you're not, if you can't, if you can't make the journey either because you can't afford it or you just don't really can't, uh, it's never really appealed to you. You can still help by educating people about the crisis, learning about it, and then educating, and also by donating to several vulture, like or several conservation organisations. Mm-hmm. But the best way to help is actually to go to Africa and experience Africa, experience, you know, support the African people and then support the conservation in those areas. Because the majority of funding that comes from a lot of conservation areas is actually via tourism. Because ecotourism, um, whilst it has some flaws, it's actually much more positive overall. And it, it, every single ecotourist will pay a levy towards conservation in that particular area. So by going on safari or going, even if it's a really cheap safari, effectively, you're, you'll be contributing to the conser- conservation conservation of that species, of the, of the entire areas. So what are your thoughts on ecotourism? Like, I personally think it has um, massive potential for two reasons. One, you kind of develop that emotional connection with the natural world, with animals, like you can never replace a tangible real world experience with say a video. It's just not the same. And the second reason is, um, ecotourism gives the natural world a monetary value, which is important for the decision makers of the world. So I'm a big believer in it, but like, like you said, there's obviously, um, flaws to the system and there's things that, that we can improve on, but what are your thoughts on it as a conservational tool? I think it has, it definitely has its place. And it, it is like ecotourism, if it's done properly, is in terms of it's, if it's well regulated, if you're not like, if you put in 30 lodges into a particular area just to get as much money out of it as possible, I don't agree with that. But if it's just, if it's like, if, if it's well regulated and it's, um, and you have a right amount of lodges and a right amount of money going into an area, it's actually extremely beneficial to that area. The problem is ecotourism is only viable in certain areas. So areas that are close to airports, areas that have got very beautiful areas of wildlife, like beautiful scenery, huge densities of game. So then how do you protect the other areas? So ecotourism does their, does their great job of, you know, as you said, it provides a monetary value to the species and you, you get become one, basically come experience an environment where you couldn't exactly see. You, can, you can't, as you said, you can't compare a video to the, um, to the real deal. Then how would you how would you protect all the other wildlife areas that currently exist in Zambia, in Zimbabwe, in Botswana without ecotourism? Because because that's what essentially what's happened. What you have to do now. The current method of doing that is is actually hunting. So you've got huge area. You've got the, the huge pockets of ecotourism money, which are in different areas. So say in Zimbabwe, Manipal's. Um, Zambia's National Park and Wanga National Park are the three largest areas for ecotourism. And then in between all of those, you've got hunting concessions, which actually operate as um, as wildlife corridors in between the areas. So animals can move freely, freely in inverted commas, because they can still get shot by people. But that hypothetically, they can move across huge, huge areas of land and, and have protected habitat. So you're posing that as a potential um, solution to ensure that the, the money is distributed more evenly throughout. It's not a solution that I am morally happy with, 
but it is a it is currently in place and it's actually when again when done right is actually quite beneficial to the areas well the way i look at it is why does an elephant's life matter more than a thousand kudus a thousand impalas 10 million insects why why is one animal's life more important than everything else's everyone i think the question would be is it necessary to kill that elephant in order to save those yeah. can you save those through an alternative method well that's the thing right in these particular areas people don't go to them so people aren't going to go on a, on a photo safari to an area that's not very pretty and doesn't have a high proportion of game Mm-hmm. So an elephant, an elephant hunt, I, mean, I wouldn't, I'd never do it. I think it's abhorrent. What, like, because elephants are so socially advanced, the way that I, I could never ever do it. But, you know, if you shoot an elephant in Zimbabwe, you get you get fifty thousand dollars, of which a proportion of that will go into conserving the area. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, it's a bit of a trade off. And the good thing about it is, I would say, good thing is that. Because these areas currently exist, they can then later on, when people are more interested in conservation and more w- willing to go out to Africa and experience it, they can then be converted to ecotourism reserves, which is actually what's happened in, in Mana Pools, around Mana Pools. So Mana Pools is the site of um, where the BBC shot dynasties for their Painted Wolves documentary. And in Mana Pools, they've got this one, um, one area of Mana Pools is shown and they say it's all mana pools, but only the centre of the actual map they show is mana pools, and the rest of it on either side is hunting concession. And one of those hunting concessions was a hunting concession for 30, 40 years, I think it was, and now it's been bought out by a conservation trust and is purely for conservation and ecotourism. And because that hunting concession existed, now that wildlife area is, is existing where the animals are not hunted at all and they're completely protected by the conservation trust to operate there. So I would like to see over time a phasing out of the hunting, but currently in the state we've got at the moment, it's actually quite an important thing to have in Africa in order to conserve areas of conservation. Mm-hmm. Is there a way, I guess, moving forward for there to be some kind of um, almost like a ecosystem tax where all these privatized ecotourism organizations would have to give off an X amount of their profit into a pool of money, which would then well, be that distributed. Already. That, that happens already for all of the lodges. They have to pay. Like, for instance, if I wanted to go on safari in Zambia, which is, I know this, so I know the figures. So I wanted to go to the Lower Zambezi National Park. I could go to Lower Zambezi National Park for $1,000 a night, of which 200 of those dollars would be a conservation levy that goes towards, effectively a conservation tax that goes towards the wildlife area. Mm. And it's not just that one wildlife area, but all the wildlife areas around that Lower Zambezi National Park as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. But what I think you're saying is a conservation tax where you increase like the, the percentage of the money that you put forward and that gets taxed and then goes to other wildlife areas that are- may receive and, less ecotourism or, or exactly, something. Exactly, yeah. So that is also, um, but then that's, offloading the prices onto, onto the consumer. People are less likely. I know that people are less likely to go on holiday if it costs them $500 a night extra. So but do you reckon, do you reckon the it would be 500 bucks will do it, if you, um, it depends how much you want to conserve. It could be, any, like, it could be like in the, for instance, 
in the like the Timbervati, they raised their they, their um, conservation levy to about forty dollars. Mm-hmm. Timbervati is a game reserve in in southern Africa. They raised their conservation levy by forty dollars in one year. So if that continues to happen over a, a successive years, mm-hmm. like it could be up to it could be that much money. But I think five hundred five hundred is a bit steep. I think though. I think if I if I say something like more like a hundred dollars, people are less likely to do that. If it's if it's a family of four, say, and they've got to spend they're spending six nights you know on a safari because that's what normally happens, and it's so it's four hundred dollars extra a night. So that's what that's two hundred two two and a half thousand dollars more. They're less likely to go to that particular place. Mm-hmm. So it's a thing that can definitely be brought in, but only if everyone does it. Because if everyone does it, then the prices of safaris go up across the board, and you and like people will just you know they'll just do it anyway because they still want to go on safari. Yeah, but then if, if the supply also if the demand increases as well, then the price like if more people go, then yeah. the price will decrease as well. And I think would attract tourists if they realise that them being there means that less elephants are going to be shot through trophy yes. hunting yeah. than there's more of an incentive to go there in the first place. So I know many that can afford well, it would do it purely people, on that yeah. reason that they, by going there, they're stopping this. A good this. example of that is actually is, is Botswana. Botswana banned hunting in 2014, and they saw a huge increase in ecotourism because of it because people didn't want animals to get shot. Yeah. But this, vo- this, this incident of the elephants being poached and those 500 vultures dying occurred in one of those old hunting concessions that hasn't been nothing's been done with it mm-hmm. like in in six years no one has taken over that hunting concession for ecotourism no money has been put into it and so there's no real conservation organization on the grounds right well no one as in the funding is just not there for it so that's why these elephants are more likely to have gotten poached and then that's going to exacerbate things so the way to do that what boss what boss wanna should have done is when they had their ecotourism boom in in 2015 2016 it's opened up more of their conservation areas that were hunting concessions and converted them to ecotourism but they didn't do that because they didn't they didn't plan that far ahead mm-hmm. unfortunately because ultimately the the hunting ban that came in by the common administration was an executive order mm-hmm. so it the, the president just signed a thing saying no more hunting we're banning all hunting and um that was over the last six years the the actual wildlife enrochment like from people in the hunting concessions has increased quite a lot so it's a very tricky one because i do agree with the policy as long as you have a solution like to get to to implement after it which they unfortunately didn't do very well they did it around the the main what again they did it around the main wildlife areas marimi game reserve chobe national park they had those hunting concessions around that mm. that were then sold to ecotourism lodges and that boom those wildlife areas are really well protected but the area next to the, the makali kali pans um that is between there and wangi isn't really used that much because it's hard to get to so no one re- and it's just it's just flat land so no one and it's very very flat deserty land and no one really wants to go on safari there because they'd rather go to the Chobe river and see stuff you know see huge densities of game apart from obviously there's the like the avid the avid safari goers will go to this place just to experience it and be all on their own um where was i yeah so the the because they didn't because they didn't organize that hunting concession and convert it to ecotourism straight away and promote it having that promotion this that could be a factor in why we've seen a huge spike in elephant poaching over the last 
over the last five years. Because those areas weren't converted to ecotourism. Yeah, effectively, yes. They weren't they weren't converted to ecotourism. The money dried up and they just didn't do they didn't they didn't really plan ahead for it, unfortunately. And so you might have seen the Elephant Without Borders um report about elephant poaching. Elephant poaching in Botswana has increased by five hundred percent over the last five years. And all of the if you look at the map of where all of because they, they published their map, all of the elephants that have been poached, apart from about five five or six, I think it was, were occurred either on the boundary between villages and the old hunting concessions or in the old hunting concession. So it's apart from obviously the ones where they, they had the new ecotourism areas, I'm talking about the old hunting concessions that are now derelict and don't have anyone managing them. That's where the increases in poaching are occurring. So the Botswana government's now solution is to bring back hunting and, and put money into that. My solution would be, why don't you just, you know, promote more ecotourism into those areas? You know, get people to go and go and visit them and then get more money pumped into them. Or, as you said, get a conservation tax for the, all the current existing areas that have ecotourism lodges and then pump that money into those old concession areas. Well, like a combination of both. So promoting more yeah. land for ecotourism and then imposing some kind of conservation tax where you can distribute that money more evenly across the board. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, like I, I can I can see the monetary justification for trophy hunting and, and how that money can be used to promote conservation, but it's more the morality aspect and doesn't really make two cents to me, this idea of, um, you know, there may be a, an influx of elephants or whatever in a certain area and that's um being detrimental to the balance of the ecosystem therefore we should kill off a few of them in order to kind of return that number back to an optimal number um and then the money generated from the hunting can be used for conservation but that doesn't really sit too well with me ethically well the issue that you've just said that you've equated um well you basically said that you can get hunting to come in to control the elephant population if it gets too many then you can hunt some of them and then um and then you don't um then you can reduce the numbers effectively what you just said that's not the way that's not what happens in africa but like, elephant populations are not controlled by hunting because there's 126,000 elephants in botswana and before the hunting ban was, in, was put in place only 400 were shot every year, roughly, that the permits are actually implemented. That was for actual hunts. The thing is that the way these organized, like the wildlife areas control elephant populations is by widespread culling. In the same way that deer are culled in the, in the UK and in the, in, the, in the US. I don't know about the Australia and New Zealand, but um, across the board, like animals are, are, if there's too many of them, they just get wiped out by governments. Mm -hmm. And so people don't see that side of Africa too much unfor well not unfortunately but it gives people a romanticized view of it if you have an area especially in southern Af in south africa where it's all fenced in and they've got nowhere to go like i was in i was in a place called Kurongwe in uh in in um in south africa last summer and they routinely cull impalas like crazy because impalas breed like crazy and so they can't have got nowhere to go so they have to be every year they just they just shoot loads of them they're not being trophy shot they're just being shot to reduce the numbers. And that's what, that's what used to happen in the Kruger 
It used to happen all across, in fact, all across Southern Africa, elephants used to be culled like crazy to control numbers to protect the ecosystems. And then people thought, were saying, I don't like elephants being culled. It's horrible. It's abhorrent, which it is. It absolutely is. So no longer, the Kruger doesn't cull anymore. Botswana doesn't cull anymore. And that's, and Zimbabwe doesn't really cull anymore either. And that's why the elephant populations are so high in those countries, in those three countries. You've got, a, you've got a population of elephants that is almost half the remaining population of elephants in the world, in these three countries. And they're existing in habitat that can't support them as well as uh, there's not enough habitat for them. So they're, they're now, all the elephants that are in Botswana and Zimbabwe are enroaching on the existing communities around those areas. And so the reason Botswana also tried to bring back hunting as well is because that the community, they asked the communities, what do you want done about these elephant populations? And the community said, we want to, you guys to go out and shoot them for meat and then stop them from shooting our, from eating our crops. And so that's what the Botswana government's planning to do. And everyone, everyone is saying outside of Botswana is saying how abhorrent it is they're bringing back hunting. Well, in reality, they're doing it because the communities want people to go and go out and shoot elephants because they're destroying their crops, which is quite sad, really. It's quite mm, you, again, you're, you think you, you can't you've got to think about conservation on the on the broad scale, but also on the local scale, like mm -hmm. elephants in Botswana, elephants in Zimbabwe in these particular two areas are at such high density. They're at high densities compared to everywhere else in Africa. And they are, they, it is the last real remaining core population that is really strong. Now you've got areas like Tanzania where the elephant population has declined by, by 100,000 in 10 years. So that in those areas, like I can completely 100, understand- 100,000 in 10 years. 100,000 100, elephants died in Tanzania in 10 years. All poached for ivory. Is that on the Red List website as well? Uh, not, no, that, that was published in The Guardian um, a few years ago. And I've got people on the ground who've told me, from Tanzania, who've told me it's about that figure, which I can, I can try and source yeah. that figure. Yeah, if yeah. you can send me a link or whatever yeah. to but that I figure. Also in, um, the, I think it was by Dr. Chase, who's from Botswana, organized an elephant, um, he organized an elephant Y, the, it was called the Great Elephant Census in mm. 2014. He measured... Him and his team went out through across all of Africa and measured elephant populations on their decline, which I'll, I'll send you. But yeah, Tanzania lost its elephant population effectively, like by like 80% in 10 years. And, and what was that? Was that through poaching? That was th all through poaching, yeah. Yeah. So elephants in Tanzania are critically endangered, but elephants in Botswana are least concerned, if that makes sense. They're, they're, they are, they are, they're not being poached as much, but they're still being, they're, as I said before, they've been poached by an increase of 500%. Mm. But that's only from 18 individuals to 90 in one year. Whereas in Tanzania, they've lost 100,000. So it's all relative. Mm -hmm. So if Botswana nips its elephant um, poaching in, in the bud, if it completely stops its elephant poaching, which it will now do, it will then, I think, I think the people who are living in the adjacent communities have almost have the right to get something done about the elephants and then enroach on their land. Yeah, it definitely makes it a lot more complex when the community themselves want it a particular way because, um, yeah, like you said, it's a, a big, yeah, there's a, you need to approach conservation from the big perspective and the local community is integral to um, 
is integral to that solution. And if they're wanting to kill them for their meat or kill them because they're destroying their crops, then you need to consider that because they're the ones that are living there with them. Um, but yeah, it, it is tricky. Um, morally, ethically, and but you also need to be practical as well and balancing all of those things and what, what does that look like um, is, yeah, is a hard one to kind of visualize. But that's what conservation is all about. It's, it's really, really complex situations that require really complex solutions, effectively. And the view of the Western world, if I, if I put it in, in, th- in uh, inverted commas, is nowadays, because with the rise of social media, like everyone knows everything now. You can you can learn about like this vulture thing that we've I've, I've discovered. Well, we know about everything and nothing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's a good point. But yeah. we we can understand. We can see things that go on. So if we 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 people know that Botswana is going to bring back its hunting and are absolutely going nuts about it on all the on all the conservation pages, and that can change policy. Just the views of people yeah, from the other side of the world saying I'm not going to go to Botswana and because they're now bringing back hunting because and so, so like if people saying that enough can change policy yeah and that's what's that, that is what like for instance a good example of this it's not to do with hunting it's completely different but it's conservation based is the um in Zambia they were pl- they were planning to dam up the Luangwa the, the Luangwa river mm-hmm. now the Luangwa is a the North Luangwa South Luangwa Luang, uh, Luambe national parks and all the concessions around it cover about, I think it's 25,000 square Ks. And if they dam this river, then they would have created a two and a half thousand square K lake of, and this, which is 10% of the entire reserve. And through lobbying and by like WWF and ZCP, which are two organizations there, and through a social media campaign, they got 200,000 people to sign a petition to prevent the dam from happening mm-hmm. and people will sign it. And just today the government have come out and said, we're no longer going to put the dam in the river. And it all, it's all from people elsewhere signing this sign, signing and getting involved with this conservation and saying, we don't want this to happen because it's going to really impact the wildlife there. Like the international aspect and the national aspects like intertwined almost and have created the, and have all influenced this policy by a government in, in Africa, which I think is incredible. Yeah, I think that's super incredible. Just goes to show you the power of the internet. Like it can, I believe in the power of the people and the internet has the ability to harness the power of the people within an instant, effectively. Mm. Um, but then the issue then becomes, if the people have that much power, we need to do the best to ensure that they're acting with uh an educated and informed way you know like these issues on conservation which are very you know life and death situations we need to be sure that the the people are equipped with the right knowledge to be making these decisions Mm, exactly which is difficult and fake news is one thing that i'm trying to wrap my head around because even with these infographics you see these images and these articles and you just there is no way of knowing instantly how reputable it is and if it's fake news or if it's legit. Like it is it is difficult. So that's like when we did our trivia Tuesday the other night, just having the sources at the end 
I, yeah. I want to try it like in, in previous infographics, I've, in, I've cited, you know, where I've, where I've got the information from and I wish if, uh, Instagram would allow us to link actual URLs in the captions so people can actually click and go to the article because that's a, a good way to just be like, this seems crazy. Let me just check if it's real. Like, is there a link somewhere where I can click it and, and just fact check? But we don't have that option on Instagram, unfortunately. Well, I would actually disagree with that because you can put a link in your bio. So yeah, and then you can you link them back to your. So you can say link here's like here is here's at the end of like your um at your of your like your trivia Tuesday. You say here are our sources, links in my bio, and they can go and click on those papers and they can read yeah, them. Yeah, that's a good point actually. Like, yeah, that might be worth looking trying to do next time or something like that for your yeah. papers and. Yeah, because I'm, I'm yeah, using Linktree at the moment, which allows you to have like multiple different links your, under um, the one link. Like your stuff about fake news is very, very relevant for Botswana in this hunting stuff because Mike Chase is the head of Elephant Without Borders. He was the one who, who published this stuff. You know, poaching has decreased by five, sorry, increased by five hundred percent over the last five years in Botswana, and that's all from his data that he's collected and that he's published and made public. And the Botswana government accusing him of spreading false information about Botswana's um, Botswana's wildlife situation, and they revoked his research permits completely because they said he was spreading fake news about the country. And so, Botswana is actually creating fake news by saying that fake news was being done. Like my chase was saying, fake news. If that makes sense, they were they were trying to they were trying to underplay the situation deliberately, and they they've said that because he was spreading fake news even though he wasn't he's no longer allowed to do research for, in botswana for a particular parts of his um organization you're right which is it's nuts but that's again that's the politi- that's not another big thing about conservation is, is the politics you've got to be so careful so careful about who when you're interacting about how um like who you're who you're working with and their views, if it's like, because you in conservation, you are working with government officials. If you if you do anything to disrespect the government official, you can lose everything like that. You can lose, yeah. and like, and then suddenly, ten years of your work has gone down the drain. It's it's quite nuts, really, how how political it all is. And so, but then overall, I think it's really worth it. So I think all of that stuff, like you know, the the politics aside, is just. Being able to go out and work in the bush and con- and conduct research and conserve species and then spread that knowledge to people about about the work that you do makes it so much more worth it. And the difference that you make makes it so much more worth it than just not doing anything at all. So, yeah. Yeah, that's one thing I want to do is kind of get some more hands-on experience. Um, yeah, because obviously being an architect, this and practicing for a couple of years after graduating. And then starting this project only about a year ago, um, and this is still evolving and I'm still trying to figure out what um, this all means, but uh, I want to get some tangible hands-on experience and maybe somewhere in Africa, some volunteering somewhere in Africa or even looking at maybe Sumatra with some orangutans there. You've got to be extremely careful with volunteer organizations because volunteer organizations are there are so many of them and you've got you've got to do so much research as in your own research on the organizations themselves because there are so many volunteer organizations out there that say they're for conservation and they're not they're just money making machines and they do so little for the Mm. conservation communities around them it's it's really quite abhorrent 
Is there, um, is there like a trip advisor specific to conservation where they review these organizations? Like, is there a well, platform where, or like a, a website? A, you can a go Facebook, like, for example, there's a Facebook group called Volunteers in Africa Beware, and it lists like 300 organizations in a very good, good, bad, ugly list of where to go. And um, that's a good baseline to start off with. But then once you've like, there's there's a bit of a discrepancy because some of the ones that are on the good list aren't necessarily supposed to be on the good list. It's just there's a bit of favoritism going on by the actual um, the the page organisers, which always like there's one there's like for instance there's a bloke called Kevin Richardson. Yeah, there's a bloke called Kevin Richardson in in um in South Africa who who um, has a lion sanctuary in inverted commas and he's on the good list. But he like he plays with his lions and like he does his you have to be to be a lion sanctuary, you can't breed lions and you have to be accredited by the um the sanctuary organization of South Africa, whatever it's called. And his is not. But he gets loads of volunteers to come and see his lions, him interact with his lions, and they're on the good list. Like what he he is part of What's his name? small reserve, Kevin Richardson. Oh, so he's he, not good. I've I've seen him. Yeah, he he lions and he, stuff. I wouldn't say he's not good because he is um he has shared, he has got so many people interested in conservation because he's he's but on on the other hand he does exploit the animals that he's got so it's a it's a tricky situation that one i would say he's, he doesn't mean to exploit them it's just yeah, like, yeah, he, yeah. He, like he genuinely loves his animals and like he he wants them to have the best lives that they possibly could have mm-hmm. But he does go out and play with them all the time. And it makes people think, oh, that's cool. I want to go out and play with a lion. I'm going to go volunteer somewhere. I want yeah. to go and play with a lion. Or I'll buy one as a pet, whether it's yeah, lions that's, that's or a, chimpanzees. And... In, so that's a big problem for cheetahs and lions and leopards in um, in the Middle East. Is yeah. that is the, is the, is the um, wildlife trade for pets is, is so, so tough to try and sort out that because you've got again it's a cultural it's a cultural thing if you've got a lion you've got a cheetah you are it's you are so much higher in the social status and um yeah it's that's that's another area of conservation that is is very tricky that's that's something i've been trying to look for some research papers on um because there's a lot of animal influences out there at the moment which like i genuinely believe their intentions are great like they um, they love the animals and they care for the animals, but they're also hugging these animals and they're being in such unnatural environments. Like the chimpanzee might be in a bathtub and he's like sh- helping him shampoo his hair or something. And this is part of a sanctuary, but these people have yeah. millions and m- millions and millions of views. And even though their intention may be um, admirable, that doesn't translate to the people viewing it necessarily all they see is this looks cool i want want one for myself like i read through the comments and one's like oh i want a pet like that well that's my dream that's my dream pet yeah have you seen the instagram page black jaguar white tiger yeah like it's that that sort of stuff you know every single video he's got is him with like six lion cubs in his house and i'm like you know you're a sanctuary but how have you always got baby cubs you know, you've got all these famous people coming. You've got like Ryan Seacrest coming and viewing your animals and thinking, oh, this is fantastic. And you get millions of views. But 
And I can understand, like, he first started off, he generally said he first started off because he wanted to rescue animals from zoos. Yeah. And, and not zoos, sorry, not zoos, sorry, from, from, um, from circuses in, in Mexico. And so he generally, that's how he started off. But now, because he's so big and popular, he's fueling that trade. He's fueling people to go and breed cubs so that people like him, him and people like him, will go and buy them and save them. Like it's it's very it's a, and people uh, that's a big that's that's one of the flaws I think of social media, is that the wrong information gets spread too easily. Well, I don't I don't I think it's um, the social media isn't the issue. It's um, that we just need to be more responsible with how we consume content. Like like I was mentioning before, intention and perception don't always align. And um, this black Jaguar guy, I don't know the bloke, but his intentions could be good. Like in his brain, he might be like, "This, I'm doing the right thing and this is good for conservation. Um, but that's not how that content's perceived by a lot of people. So I think there needs to be more responsibility on the consumer about looking at a content and and just trying to learn more about it before you kind of um, judge it. You know, like, this doesn't look right. Why doesn't it look right? Let me just research it a little bit. Um, because, yeah, I, I don't think it's, it's Instagram's fault. Like, Instagram's just a mirror. Like, it, Instagram isn't posting content just on itself. It's it's posting what we want it to post. Um, post. So all these things that we're thinking, um, it's just exposing our good and bad traits. And I, I don't think that is necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just the reality. And if it's a bad thing, then it gives us the opportunity to address it. Like if that makes sense. Like it's, it's just exposing our good and bad traits, which is probably a good thing because we can reinforce the good traits and then try and... Um, uh counter the bad traits that are exposed through these platforms yeah I, yeah I, I would agree with that but it's extremely difficult to counter a bad trait of, an, of a page that's got seven million likes and it gets react and people like it's it's, it's it's reached out to seven million people or eight million people whatever it is mm. i don't know and i'm not i don't want to i'm only using black jaguar white tiger as an example but there are loads of them oh like yeah this. yeah there, there are loads like, I'm only using that name because everyone else, people who are watching this will know what that organization is. But yeah. um, like that, you've got, again, as you say, you've got to be more responsible about and, and more thought-provoking about what you're actually viewing. Yeah. But then the average person who doesn't know anything about conservation sees these things because they're, they're cute animals and they think, oh, that's cool. They don't, and they don't, they don't, a lot of people aren't interested in, in going out and learning this stuff. Because they just they just they're just happy following these cute animal pages on their Instagrams and stuff, mm. and it's um it's a very difficult one to change. But you, you ultimately got to change people's perceptions. It all comes back to again, us saying at the start of this, you've got to change people's view on something, but then make them want to change their view and ex and like get something good out of it. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.